Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Beyond the Surface podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I believe in the power of story, the power of journey. When we dive deep with people and find out their story, their journey, we can learn, we can steal, we can reflect on what worked for them and what may work for us. So I think we all have a story that we tell ourselves, and that story makes up our mindset. It makes up our approach. So when we listen to others and find out what stories they have and what they've learned, whether it's facing adversity or having success, we can implement that and steal from it and put it into our own story. So what we'll do is we'll find out about people's mindset. What tools do they use? How do they look at the world? What's their approach to preparation? And what's their approach to performance? We'll talk to athletes. We'll talk to coaches. We'll talk to CEOs, actors, musicians, TV personalities, agents, anyone who really considers himself to be a performer, and anyone that I believe is elite at what they do. So I hope you enjoy these conversations. And remember, as they go beyond the surface, hopefully you'll go beyond the surface with yourself as well. Today, I go beyond the surface with Dr. Amber Latner. Amber is a really interesting and passionate person who I've gotten to know over the past couple of years. She's a sports psychologist, and we have shared ideas, best practices, and I've become better at what I do because of people like Amber. When you listen to Amber's story, you're going to hear about her faith. Uh, she's someone who's religious and uses that faith to guide herself. You're going to hear about her competitive spirit from a very young age. She had this desire to compete, which really showed itself on the soccer field. She'll talk about breaking stereotypes and being a woman and being an athlete and her desire to bridge the gap between stereotypes and reality. And also just this hyperactivity that she has, this passion that she has, this desire to learn and to grow. And she just has a way with words that's really special. So this is a little different beyond the surface episode because... I'm talking to a colleague. I'm talking to someone who is in the same space as myself. So hopefully you will appreciate our back and forth as we dive deep into different ideas and concepts and just give our perspective on the world while also looking into Amber's story and how that has shaped her mindset today. So let's dive right in. And I present to you, Dr. Amber Latner. Amber, thanks for joining me on the Beyond the Surface podcast why don't you start, tell me about your journey, your story, your upbringing, what life was like for little Amber. Wow. Well, first of all, Brian, thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm excited. So typically I'm the one on the other side doing the interviews for these podcasts. So it's an honor to, to be here with you today. I really appreciate the invitation. So background on little Amber. Well, little Amber was absolutely crazy. Um, I think in third grade, my mom took me to the doctors to see if I had abnormal amounts of adrenaline in my system because the gym teacher was calling her, telling her to remind little Amber that this is not the Olympics. This is gym class. And the teachers were like, Cindy, Amber does not need to be the first in line every single time we line up. And so, um, you know, God bless my mom. She was really like, she never told me any of this until I was older. She just encouraged my competitive spirit. And so I, I was incredibly competitive as a little one. Um, I grew up in the country. So I grew up in a small town in Northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, really, really cool upbringing actually. So my parents had McDonald's franchises. So I grew up in the business world of franchisees and seeing what hard work and long hours and family businesses are really made of. Um, 
And then I lived in the country, right? And I showed livestock. So I raised lambs and hogs and would have to go down to the barn before school every morning and, and feed the animals and work them out and then go up and get ready and go to school. And, and school is very important, right? So I, you know, fortunate that, that our parents made school a priority in our worlds. And so we'd come home and do schoolwork. And then I was, I was a soccer player. And so, um, played soccer, started in first grade and, and just really dived into becoming the best athlete I could become. And, and I think probably around fifth grade is when I really started with this vision of I'm going to be a division one college soccer player. And that was, that sort of became all consuming. Right. And, and, and yet not because I still had to work the animals out. I still had to go to McDonald's functions and I still had to do homework. And so, you know, my, my identity was sort of split right between these four different domains of, of rural America and athletics and business. And, and I, I had this thing when I was little that I wanted to blast every stereotype there was because, you know, I'm from a small town and we had the only fast food restaurant in town and people are like, oh, well, she's stuck up. She's rich. And I'm thinking, I am not rich. I wish you saw my family's like income. Right. But if you think I'm mean because my parents had McDonald's, well, I'm, then I'm going to be the nicest person that you ever met. Right. And, and I was an athlete. So people obviously then thought I was a jock and I'm like, well, no, if I'm going to be the best athlete, you know, then I'm also going to be the smartest person, you know? And so, you know, I just went through these iterations of I'm going to be everything on all sides of the spectrum and force you to sort of deal with this. Any idea where that, any idea where that came from? That idea of going against the grain? I think my parents just always encouraged us to be the very best that we could be. And, and if you're, if that means you're in all of these different domains that you choose to be a part of, then you be the very best that you can be in those. And I think just through that, I started seeing people try to put me in those boxes and I hated it. And so beyond that, the other really defining force in my life is my relationship with Jesus Christ. And so at a very young age, you know, my faith is what started to inform my thinking about right and wrong and, and how to treat people and how to, how to be great at what we do. And that, that greatness is not a bad thing, right? It's something that, that we should strive for. And excellence is something that we should strive for in every domain. And part of excellence is, you know, being really good at your craft, but also treating people the right way. And so, you know, as I grew up and, again, saw these boxes that society tried to put me in, I just became this little vigilante of trying to blast all the boxes, you know, but yet in a godly way. <laughs> so, and, and you know, faith, I was just... Was faith, faith something that was a big part of your upbringing and was, was going to church and uh, religion and reading the Bible? T talk to me a little more about that. Yeah. So, uh, we would go to church every Sunday with my great grandma, my great grandparents and my grandparents. And then we'd go over to great grandma's house and have Sunday lunch, you know, and I was in my little church dress. Um, but we had a babysitter, we call her grams. I mean, that's how much time she spent with us. Right. And, and she was the happiest person I'd ever met and she loved Jesus. And so every time we did something right, and I'm talking when I was like, from the time I was born till the time I was six years old, I spent with her. And so she really, I think molded my conception of what a relationship was. It wasn't really about religion. It was about this relationship. So I just figured, you know, Jesus came with grams every day because every day I did something right. We had to thank Jesus. And every day I did something bad, which was every day we had to, you know, ask for forgiveness. And so I just grew up with this thought, well, Jesus is always here and he's our friend and he's our father and all this stuff. And, um, and so that, you know, it just made it really real for me at that young age, which I think then got integrated and ingrained in me so that it started to show up in all of these different places that I found myself, whether it was school or sport or work. And the competitive spirit that you hit on earlier, 
is that from mom? Is that from dad? Are there siblings involved? Where, where does that develop? Where does that come from? I mean, I think everybody has different personalities, right? And different spectrums of how they think about competition. Uh, I had an, I have an older brother. And so when I was little, I always wanted to play with the boys and, you know, I had to be tough enough. I couldn't cry because then I couldn't play and I couldn't tattletale because then I couldn't play, you know? And so I just, I just loved winning. I mean, my parents told me when I went swimming for the first time, it like, I was less than two. I just like jumped in the pool and I sunk to the bottom and my dad like jumped in and got me and I came up smiling, like slapping around, you know? And so I don't know. I mean, I think that it's, I think we're all a little bit different, my siblings and I, but you know, just sort of this fierce competitive nature is a part of who I am that was then nurtured by my parents in a really healthy way, I so, think. So you're an older brother. How much older? And then you said siblings. So I'm assuming there's somebody else involved. Yes. Yeah, so my brother's three years older and my little sister's eight years younger. So baby, baby in the and, family. And um, do they have that competitive spirit in them as well? They do, but it's different. Um, my brother he's massively intelligent. He's the vice president of a private equity firm in Chicago. Um, uh, j- amazing guy, really competitive, but not like, not like I was obsessive about the preparation that leads to winning in everything that I chose to do. Whereas he was more selective on, okay, what am I going to be competitive about? And that showed up, I think, you know, from a sports psychology word term, more from a mastery orientation. Um, and my little sister, she is at K state in college. And so she's really just start, she's always been competitive, but hasn't necessarily liked competing, if that makes sense. Um, she wants to be really good, but didn't really like competing. And now that she's finally starting to get into what she enjoys in school from an economics and philosophy standpoint, she's just becoming fiercely engaged in developing her mind and her skill and her craft in, in that area. So I think they're probably more mastery orientated and where, when I was little, I was more win, 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 win everything. And still to a degree am, but understand again, the importance of developing the craft behind or all the work that goes into actually winning, if you will. And you had this dynamic where you have a rural upbringing where you're doing labor and and getting your hands dirty, but then you also have McDonald's, which you said in your town was like the business, right? Um, Right. If people own McDonald's, like there's a lot of, you know, billion burgers served or whatever it might be. Um, (laughs) Right. So how, how did you take from each of those and how did you, take lessons learned from each of those experiences and integrate that into the person that you've become today? Great question, Brian. I think that, um, you know, when you're little, you don't know all of these things, right? And really acknowledge what it is you're experiencing. But one thing I did notice when I was little was that in all of these domains, the people are drastically different. And yet there's a similar thread that runs between those that are the best in their craft in each of those different domains, right? And it's this hard work, it's this discipline, it's, it's doing things the right way. And, and whether they were raised lambs or whether they, um, you know, taught elementary school in our little small town or whether they were in business or in the faith, right. That, or in sport, there's, there's those similar threads. And then, you know, I went to college and, um, I I started finding myself, you know, part of my, part of my identity. I think my role and purpose in this world is to be a bridge between different domains. So when I was little, I saw this as blasting these stereotypes, right. And now I see it more of being a bridge 
between these stereotypes that exist and, and the, a bridge between opposite ends of these spectrums. You know, I would go back home on, on uh, over breaks when I was in college. I, I did um, my undergrad at the University of Notre Dame where I was in a business major. And so I, I, I gained this deep appreciation for um, business expertise in marketing, in management, in human resources. And so I would go home and I'd hear my dad and other owner operators be like, oh, corporate McDonald's, you know, they push all this stuff down to us owner operators, but it doesn't work at the roots level, you know? And, and, I, and I would be like, no, dad, like this marketing stuff, like it matters. It's really good. And, and, you know, he could see that, but then I would go spend time in the corporate office in Chicago and they'd be like, these owner operators just don't get it. You know? And I'm like, no, listen, <laughs> you got to understand these guys have been doing this since they've been 14. If you listen to to them, you know, you could really develop something special here. And so, so it started off there and then, you know, that bridge between athletics and academics, and then this bridge between, you know, faith and productivity and life. Right. Um, and then in my work in sports psychology, um, you know, I, I did a lot, I do a lot of work with, um, young black men and, and under underserved populations, right. And, and helping be a bridge between what it means and looks like for diversity to connect, right. And to thrive and to be great. And then being a female, you know, I work predominantly in, in athletics and the business space and there's fewer women in those spaces. And so being a bridge between men and women and, and black and white and, you know, rich and poor and, and corporate and, and franchisee. And so sort of having this bridge mentality of, cause I understand and I value and I appreciate both sides of those spectrums and, and being able to see that at a young age, I've been able to see the different threads that exist and then help both sides hear that from their perspective and, and see it from their lens. And again, hopefully try to connect those different areas of expertise into something that's even better than either side could have imagined. The word that popped into my head was you have this massive dose of empathy. So you talk about being at corporate and saying, no, the owner operator, this is how they're thinking and this is their approach. And then when you're with your dad, you're saying, hey, this is how corporate's thinking. And the ability to spread empathy amongst human beings. And I see it at the uh, team level where oftentimes the biggest disconnect happens between coach and player when there's just a lack of mm -hmm. empathy. So the player doesn't understand why coach is doing this and coach doesn't understand why player is doing this. And there's a disconnect there. And when we're not connected, we lack empathy. And so I think empathy is just such a strong thing. And you've grabbed onto that and made that almost your mission to spread empathy uh, and sort of build these bridges. I want to go back to fifth grade you because you said in fifth grade, I started thinking, I want to be a D1 soccer player. And fifth graders all over the country have that dream. And I'm curious for you how you pursued that dream. And we haven't really got into soccer. So I really want to find out more about your mindset growing up and, and take me all the way to college uh, as a soccer player. Yeah. So, I mean, that was my goal, right? But my parents were awesome in not making that the all consuming thing that I did in my world. And so again, I still had to help. I still had chores. I had, you know, to clean the house. I had to go to McDonald's. I had to do all of these things still. And so, you know, soccer was a part of my life. And when I got the chance to play and to work out and train, I took it very, very seriously. I mean, for me, like practice was not, let's go hang out and have fun with friends. Like practice was, we're going to get better. And Is that tough and, as a female, did you have, were you on teams where that wasn't the case or were most of the teams you were around and this is a, maybe a stereotype, but like I'm looking at fifth grade you, I want to be first in line. I want to win. I want to do all that. And I think I, I've worked with female teams where that can rub people the wrong way. Did you 
Did you make enemies along the way with that sort of approach? <laughs> enemies maybe too uh, strong of a word? Uh, no, enemies probably wasn't strong. Um, yeah, I apparently I got kicked out of our youth soccer league in our hometown. I never knew this. Apparently, my mom just never she just forgot to tell me that, I guess, at that age. And what she said was, hey, why don't we go to upstate New York and find a club team? Like, I feel like if you want to if you really want to pursue this dream, like, let's take the next step. And so she she didn't even let me in on the details that, like, I was too aggressive for our youth soccer league. And so we found the best club team in in Vestal, New York. And I went and tried out and, and made the team. And it was just a group of girls that we had a great coach, you know, and, and he did a great job of, of coaching us. And there was another girl, there, there was a lot of us that were really competitive. And so we would all just bring it to practice. I mean, I just remember like literally sixth grade, we were at, we were scrimmaging and we just got into it and like literally ripped pennies off of each other going after this ball. And like, and we got up and we both sort of laughed at each other and like picked each other up off the field. And, and it was just cool because everybody on that team, like really wanted it. And, and I was so blessed looking back. Cause you're right. You don't find teams like that often. And I was really blessed to be on two teams, like very close to us in New York that had a lot of girls with that mentality that were really good and really gritty and really competitive. Um, and love, we all went to different. I love how you interpret that whole story, which is I got kicked out of a league for being too aggressive. And, you know, I don't know what exactly <laughs> transpired. It sounds like you don't even really know exactly what transpired, but you use the word blessing. It's like, okay, I get kicked out of the league. And because of it, this other opportunity presents itself that maybe if I had stayed in that league, maybe I wouldn't have ever been surrounded by girls that were like-minded and driven and badass and all of these mm -hmm. sort of strong feminist things that, I'll, that I, I would latch onto. So um, I just think those are the moments that we all look at and a lot of times are devastating moments, mm -hmm. but there's always opportunities in those moments when I'm not going to call it failure, but maybe an obstacle or a challenge. And, and for you, that, that opened another door that otherwise maybe you wouldn't have pursued because you were comfortable playing where you were playing in your hometown. So um, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, and I think that so – Right. Your podcast is talking about how do we develop our mindsets towards things. And so my, you know, my definition of mindset is a patterned way of thinking about a situation, which often determines our response or reaction to it. And so my mindset toward failure is, um, I, I, I had, I worked on IMG Academy and one of my colleagues gave me this acronym. And so I, I never used this before I got it from him, Christian Smith, but he said, fail F A I L that just stands for first attempt in learning. Right. And then you're back at it again and how hard and, and how fast can you fail so you can learn faster and get better. And so that's really my mindset on adversity, right? Like if, if something doesn't happen, then there's gotta be a reason for it. And I think this is also linked to my faith, right. Of believing that, you know, my life verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. And it says, for I know the plans that I have for your life says the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And I believe that. And if I believe that, then that has to dictate how I intersect with everything, success and failure. Right. And so if something doesn't go the way I want it to, then I have to believe that I, right, he knows the plans for my life that are prospering me and not to harm me, give me hope and a future. So something else must be happening or the next opportunity might be just around the corner that, that I have to persevere and hold off and wait for so that those things, those promises can come to fruition. Let's talk about failure for a second, because now we, now we can get into it, but I'm still not, we're, we're still going to find out your story. So we're gonna come back <laughs> to, you're not getting off the hook. I want to know about soccer and high school and, and then moving on up. Um, but 
So here's the dynamic that I see when we talk about failure. So if I go to any commencement speech across the country in a couple of months, they will talk about fail, fail over, fail forward, you know, fail again, go toward the failure. And I remember I was working with a basketball team once and we talked about failure and we're like, failure is a good thing. You learn from it. Like go toward the failure, fail, fail, for, fail forward. And it was right before a big game. And I walk into the stands to go sit with the players and they go, Brian, we're just going to fail today. Like, we're just going to go out and fail. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, who cares? Like, we're just going to fail. And I go, you guys did not oh, understand the message <laughs> I was trying to deliver. And so I go back to this idea, and here's, here's my thought. We should fear failure when we're preparing, and we should be fearless when we're performing. And I think fear of failure, if we don't have that element in us, I don't think it brings out the best in us. So I think mm -hmm. that, that fear of failure, if you listen to Serena Williams, Usain Bolt, Derek Jeter, I have Michael Strahan, I have quotes from all these guys saying that failing was not an option, that they were afraid to fail. And, you know, I've talked to actors who have moved out to Los Angeles and they said it was make it or, or nothing. Like it was, mm -hmm. I'm going to make it. And I've interviewed players at the NBA combine and they'll say, there is no plan B. Like I, you know, I'm afraid to fail. And because I'm afraid to fail, I'm going to push myself and train and work my ass off to be the best that I can be. And mm -hmm. so for me, I think we have a misconception of fear of failure. And I think sometimes we don't acknowledge that, like, if we're just living our life fearlessly all the time, then maybe we take a, a team for granted. Maybe we don't put in the work in the weight room. Maybe we eat those cheeseburgers from McDonald's. No offense to your family. And, 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 we don't have, like, it, it, men are more fearless often than, than women, but the, the, the counter to that is we don't go to the doctor as much. We don't take care of our body. We don't take care of ourselves the way that women do. So I think the idea of failure, I think there is a place for fearing failure. It's just not when I get on stage to perform. It's just not when the lights are on. That's where I need to be fearless. That's where I have to have an understanding that, you know, if I fail, I will learn. But the preparation, mm -hmm. the tedious stuff, the monotonous stuff, I think having a fear of losing uh, is, is actually a really healthy thing. And I think we don't talk about that enough because everybody just says, oh, live your life fearlessly. But you listen to the Kobe Bryants of the world. You listen to the Bryce Harpers of the world. Pick a sport, Tom Brady, and they're going to say, no, we will not fail. It's not an option. And we are going to watch film. We are going to work out. I'm going to eat the certain way because I'm afraid to fail. Um, and, and I just think it's, it's an interesting thing to unpack. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I, 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 I hate the concept of fear of failure, right? I think a lot of people are driven by that, but, but, but perhaps not right. Like I had a quote up in my bedroom that said, if you're not playing ball, someone else is right. And so I do, I do a hundred pushups and a hundred crunches every morning when I woke up and every night before I went to bed, because if I'm not training somebody else is like, and when we meet, who's going to win? I mean, that's the question, right? But I think, so I think that there's, there's a healthy nature to that. But what I think is even more healthy is this massive desire to win. Mm. And, and I think sometimes our attention gets displaced towards fear, fe fearing failure versus desiring the win. There, there is a healthy fear to failure, right. Of, of, uh, of recognizing that you could fail if you don't prepare 
right? But more so, do you? what do you want so bad that is going to drive you every single day? And then having those mechanisms in place, you know, that, that um, Chris Carter and um, wide receiver, 49ers. T.O.? Legend. Jerry no. Rice. Jerry Rice. Chris Carter and Jerry Rice, right? They used to... Chris Carter used to call Jerry at 5 a.m. and be like, hey, I'm hitting the gym. Jerry Rice picks up the phone, been here for an hour, right? I mean, just that, that, and that was their rivalry of, man, they're always grinding, right? Always competing. And so I think that, that desiring this, not like my, my biggest fear is mediocrity, right? So maybe that, that in my mind, that's failure. Like if, if I'm average, that, that drives me to want to be great, right? And I think about that occasionally, but what I think about more than mediocrity is, clarifying my vision of what I'm actually trying to accomplish and then working really, really hard to get there. Um, but let's, let's, let's unpack that even more. So let's just use Jerry Rice. What an example, this guy, you know, hardly recruited out of high school, I think played one double a football passed up in the draft by a lot of teams, a mid mid first round pick uh, ran like a four, eight 40 uh, at the combine and, you know, goes to San Francisco. He ends up being a Super Bowl MVP he ends up being considered maybe the best football player of all time. And there's a story that his quarterback, Steve Young, tell, told when he got in, inducted into the Hall of Fame. And Steve Young said, you know, after we won the Super Bowl, Jerry was the MVP. I go down to our training facility to go clear out my locker. And I notice the lights are on on the field. And I look out and nobody's there. And it's Jerry running routes. Uh, and and, you know, he had just won Super Bowl MVP. He's considered the best player in the, in the world. And there he was, like, a week after they won the Super Bowl. And he's already training again. So I think you're right. I think for someone like Jerry, mediocre or mediocrity is, is the fear. But it's still a fear of failing. It's just defining mediocrity as failure. And for Jerry, he's right. like, I, and it might be also driven by, I want to feel that again, the Super Bowl feeling, right? I want to have that again. But it's also a fear, like, if I don't do these things, then I might fail. And, look, I think that, that, that every elite athlete will tell you that they had a fear of failure. And um, it's just to your point, how do, do I have clarity around that? And then do I have clarity mm-hmm. about the vision of greatness that I want to have for myself? And if those two are clear, then I can be healthy. And, by the way, fear of failure when I'm on the court in the championship game with two minutes left in a game yeah, I don't want to fear failure. Not helpful. Well. Not, right. <laughs> not helpful. So I'm not all about fear of failure. I just think it's an important thing to continue to think about uh, how it plays a role in, in, in your life as an athlete. Um, so take me, to, take me back to soccer. I, I know I was going to bring you back. So take me through your <laughs> soccer journey. Just give us like the rundown and, and what your soccer journey was like. Yeah. So I played a ton of soccer, um, like anybody that, that is trying to specialize in a sport, um, until seventh grade. And then I got burnt out and I decided I was going to go to play to college to play basketball instead. Um, so I quit soccer for a year. I didn't play soccer for a year and I just trained basketball. And then time, time I think probably burnt out. What do mom and dad say when you say, you know, I'm playing this club team, I'm burnt. I don't want to, I don't want to do it anymore. What, what's the reaction? Okay. What do you want to do? basketball. Okay. All right. Well, let's go, let's go to Ohio and go to jump in this gym. And we met a guy who was a trainer and he started working me out. And then I got some trainers and I went all in on the basketball dream. They didn't really care what I did as long as I was all in. It's no, we don't quit in our family. It's because I hear that all the time. Like, nope, you finish where you start. Like, that's just, 
How I was well, I didn't quit mid-season, right? Yeah. So I finished the season, finished the season, finished my responsibilities that I had to my teams. And then, um, you know, I had just gotten back from, I went abroad in seventh grade to play soccer and I, and I got back and I just, I was burnt out. And, and they recognized that and they want to support whatever goals I had. And so they let me do that. Uh, about a year into it, I realized that, hey, you're like five, two and a half. And your parents are like five, five max. So good luck with that dream. And I think like, you know, intuitively you figure out, all right, that's probably never actually going to happen. And I really, really told me, no one told me I was a decent (laughs) soccer player. I was a decent soccer player. And, and you know what? They probably did tell me I wasn't listening. Like I was, I probably entered high school five foot. Like I, I was small and scrawny (laughs) and I was trying to ball and you put me on a playground. You put me anywhere. I was. Let's go. Give me the six foot dude. I want to guard him. And I, yeah. I, I'll tell you in my head, I was definitely playing varsity basketball in high school. And I didn't, I don't think I really thought about college. Um, but you know, for me, I was just a basketball player. So why would I go like, why would I continue playing soccer in eighth grade? Even though the coach is calling me and be like, Brian, please come and play with our team. Nope. I'm a basketball player now. Uh, and I'll play <laughs> some roller hockey on the side and maybe I'll <laughs> play some baseball, but like, Nope, I'm a basketball player. No one pulled me aside and said, Brian, dude, you're like, you're really little. Like, <laughs> you're not small. Like, you're one of the smallest kids in our grade. And by the way, it's not like you're dunking. It's not like you are, like, lightning quick. Like, yeah, you can shoot. Yeah, you can pass. You can handle. But, like, nope. Honestly, though, if they had told me, I probably would have said, all right, F you. I'm going to still play. So, anyway. Exactly. Uh, all right. So, so you played basketball for, like, a year, and then you realize, like, all right, maybe I should go back to soccer. Yeah. So I, you know, I played high school soccer, didn't play club soccer, I think. Um, and it was cool. Like at that age, we still, we played the boys in seventh and eighth grade, which was cool. And, um, and then sophomore year of high school, I actually moved out to Nebraska and lived with my aunt and uncle for a year and played soccer, um, in a European Academy out there. And that was, you know, I had English coaches and that was really the first time, um, that coaches really were able to hone my aggressive nature and teach me how to use that as a strength versus a liability, um, on the field and, and really started to hone, uh, my aggression in terms of performance. And they, and they didn't condemn me for it. They, they trained me how to use it. And, you know, at the end of that year, I moved back home and, and finished my junior and senior years in my hometown. So you made that um, move for soccer to, to train and to get better at soccer. Right. Right. So you, um, and, you, and, and my brother was a senior when I was a freshman. And so he was my best friend and all of his friends were my friends. And I realized that they're graduating and I, I went to turn a project in and I, and I said, ah, that's good enough. And it scared the shit out of me. I was like, good enough. What do you mean good enough? You're Amber Latner, good enough. And I had this like fear moment of, oh my God, I am going to wake up when I'm 40, still in Montrose, Pennsylvania, a town of 1800, doing nothing with my life because good enough. Who are you? I mean, I I literally lost my mind. And so I just went on this kick that I had to get out of the town. And so I found this club team out in Nebraska. My aunt and uncle just moved there. They said I could live with them. The coach came and recruited me. I put the plan together and then I took it to my parents and told them that this is what I wanted to do. And they're like, what do you mean you're already on the team? I'm like, well, he came 
came and scouted me. He's, he's here. He said, if I moved out, I'd be on the team. Like, this is the high school I would go to. Here's the classes that they have. I mean, I was like crazy. And so they're like, okay, well, if, if you think this is where God's calling you, like, we'll support you. So I moved out my sophomore year and played. Um, and you really learn like how grateful you are for family. And you know, that every home to every town is really the same. It's really what you make of it. And to not be afraid of getting stuck in something. And it's really how I choose to manage my life that, that will make the difference. So I moved home. Uh, finished my junior and senior years. I was getting recruited. So I visited like a thousand schools and I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to be a bulldog. <gasps> I'm going to be a Nittany line. No, wait, going to be a Buckeye. I, I might be, you know, I just like everything that I, I loved everywhere. That's just my personality. And, uh, but West point, and the Naval Academy were recruiting me pretty heavily. And so like really heavily, and you know how good it, I mean, it feels really good to get recruited. And so I went on an official visit to West point but I just couldn't see myself there. I mean, it's all brown, gray, and green, right? And the guys were cool, but like, then I went to this visit in, in, in Annapolis and, you know, everybody's in their Navy whites. It's right on the water. It's this colonial town. Like it's stunning. And I just remember, um, we went to pick food up at the gate with some of the people that were hosting me. And, uh, one of the guys was like, Hey, I want to show you something on the way back. So we walk over, we sit up on top of this bridge and the bridge is overlooking the soccer field right on the water. He's sitting beside me in these Navy whites and he goes, Hey, when you go to make your final decision, I just want you to remember this view. And I was like, Oh snap. I'm going to be a midshipman. I just got chills, like run up I, my spine. Like it was I live incredible. in Maryland. So I know, I know exactly where you are and what you're talking about in Annapolis. But I just got literally chills. I don't know if people listening to this will have that effect. But yeah, I mean, I, I have the image in my head. It, that That's it. And then what happened? Yeah. Well, why not a midshipman, especially where you ended up? It's a little different. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I went back and forth and I'm like, because it, so, so then at the end of all these visits, I, I walked on to Notre Dame's campus by, by accident. I didn't even know Notre Dame was in Indiana. We had come to Indiana to visit IU, Valparaiso, Butler, and Purdue. This is how crazy I was looking at schools. And we're driving across 8090, and there's a sign that says Notre Dame. And I looked at my mom, and I'm like, Notre Dame's in Indiana? She goes, I guess. So I, ca I call the coach. I call the coach. And I was like, Hey, my name is Amber Latner. I'm in Indiana looking at schools. And I was wondering if you might be available for a meeting, um, in the next couple of days. He goes, yeah, stop in on your way out tomorrow at four. And, and I'd love to chat with you. So I'm sitting there talking to Randy Waldrum and, and I look behind him and there's the national championship trophy. They, they, they just won the national championship that year. And I, I was not watching soccer at that time. I didn't even know. And I was like, Oh wow, they're pretty good too. Cool. And so <laughs> hey, why would he, why would he why would he have you come on? Like, why would he accept that? Like, you're, oh, I'm just driving through. I, yeah, come on by. I, I, it's fate. I don't know. So I just remember getting out of the truck and I took two steps and I looked at my mom and I was like, this is where I'm going to go to college. Like, I wasn't excited. There was no adrenaline. There was just this deep sense of peace. And so I, I, I trained to Here Come the Irish all summer. Like, Randy invited me to camp. So I went to camp and I tore my, I sprained my meniscus at camp. And so he goes, well you know, you can stay all week and then come back in July, or 
you know, you can go home now and come back in July. And I was thinking, well, heck, if I can hang out with you for a week, I'm going to do that. So I rode around on a golf cart with Randy for a week and we just built a good relationship. And, and then I played really well that July in the camp. And he said, you know, I'm going into my senior year and they just won the national championship. So they, you know, they've had the recruits for the next two years. And he goes, well, listen, you know, we don't have any scholarship offers left, but if you get into Notre Dame, you'll be on the team. And I was like, awesome. And then, you know, again, finished summer, trained to here, come the Irish, getting heavily recruited by Navy. Um, and I'm sitting outside one night. I'm in the country. There's no, there's no lights, right? I'm under the stars and I'm just praying about like, God, where do you want me to go to school? And, and that was the deadline. That night was the deadline of submitting your application early action, which means you'd know by December if you got in. And I just thought to myself, I was like, okay, God, I'm gonna make you a deal. No one's reviewed my essays yet. I, I, I was like, Notre Dame's really hard to get into. So here's the deal. I'm going to go in right now and submit my application early action. And if I get accepted to Notre Dame, that's where I'll go because there's really no reason I should get in except if it's your will. So I went in, submitted my application, you know, sort of walked away from it and Navy keeps coming and keeps coming. And I was getting anxious. I hadn't committed. I hadn't heard from Notre Dame. And so in November, I committed to the Naval Academy um, to play soccer and at that point, I mean, you have to, you have to get to you in your mind that like you're going into the military and so, and you've got a five-year commitment. And so my, my game plan was to go into the JAG Corps and to be a lawyer and, and all. And so I had the plan, you know, I was ready. I was committed. And this, this sort of night that I had with God and the Notre Dame application sort of dissipated, right? All of a sudden I come home one day in December and I have three letters in the mail. It was my congressional nomination for Annapolis. And then it was a letter from Annapolis that said, we're sorry to inform you that you have failed the hearing exam and will not be admitted to the Naval Academy. And I lost it bawling because I like, I mean, again, when you go all in on this, like that's, that's crazy. And so, and then the third letter, it's a big packet from Notre Dame and I open it up and it says, welcome home. You've been accepted to the class of 2010. And then I bawled again because then God gave me that, like, remembered the deal I made him. And, and it was sort of, and it was this wrestle, right? Because I felt like I called coach at Annapolis and told him what had happened. He took my case to the Admiral, got me cleared, came up to my hometown to like deliver the news and tell me he still really wanted me. So all spring, I'm like, I was, you know, back and forth because I'm a person of my word and I committed to Navy, but like I made this deal with God, like what the heck am I supposed to do about that? You know? And, um, and so I told, I told the coach this, I was like, listen, I, I don't know what to do right now because I made a deal with God and, and he held up his side of the thing, but I made a commitment to you and, and I'm really struggling. And he's like, I've never been in this situation before, um, where it's between me and God. So I don't really know how to handle it, except that I want you to know that we want you and I'm going to be here and support you what you decide. And so you know, I, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a stressful person, but I was the most stressed I'd ever been my senior year of spring trying to make this decision to figure out what I'm going to do three days before the Notre Dame deadline, which would have been May 1st to accept my applicant, my admittance. Um, I was in an indoor soccer game and we were p playing this younger team and they were just dirty and we were beating them bad. And this girl came in and tackled me from behind and my foot got stuck in the, in the turf and just shredded my ACL. And so I went down and as I'm going down, I'm thinking, well, I guess I'm not going to jump out of planes and blow things up. <laughs> and, and, uh, so I called 
the Annapolis coach, and he said, "Well, you've got three options. You can go through boot camp, or you know, plebe summer with a torn ACL, and then we'll get it operated in the fall. You can take a year off and come back the following year, or you can go to a fifth year of high school." And I was like, "You know, unfortunately, none of those options I think are feasible." And I called Randy, and he said, "Well." I told you if you got admitted, you'd be on the team. So welcome home. And for those people that don't know, Navy doesn't offer scholarship, but it's it's free. It's you know you're you're part of the academy. So a lot of times athletes that are looking at Navy versus another school, like Navy actually a academically is is unbelievable, incredible. Uh, yeah. B they have an amazing network of people in the workforce, uh, and yeah. C it's a, it is a free education. So um, you're you're also you know, dealing with that versus a walk-on position at a private school uh, like Notre Dame. Yeah. So there are other dynamics in play, I'm sure. Um, so, so you tear yeah. your, you, you end up at Notre Dame, you tear your, you've got a torn ACL. Um, at that point, are you thinking like, I still want to play soccer? Like, where are you? on? Oh the- yeah. Oh no. I'm, I'm for sure playing soccer at the university of Notre Dame and I'm going to be like a contributing member of the entire program, of course. So I'm there in my white red shirt in my fall season and, and we go undefeated and lose in the national championship game to UNC by goal. And, and so, you know, devastated because I mean, I wasn't playing games cause I was rehabbing, but you know, that's practice every day. I mean, all you do as a student athlete, right. Is you get up, you eat, you go to the training, training room, you go to class, you go to lunch, you go to the training room, you go to practice, you go to dinner, you do homework, you go to sleep, and then you get up and do it all again the next day. Like people think it's a glamorous, sexy life, but you know, like what we talked about in terms of excellence, right. That book, the mendeity of excellence, like excellence is not sexy. The, the outcome is, but the grind to get there is not. And so, but, but that, I love that. Like I didn't want anything else. That's, that's what I valued. And, um, so I did it and it was awesome. And then I came back in spring, um, and worked really, really hard. I was that little freshman that after every practice, I'd go up to our seniors, like, how do you think I'm doing? What can I do better? I, you know, like I'm on, I'm obnoxious, I'm sure, but, but really on it. And, and they kept giving me such great feedback. And then, uh, three days before we started taking finals, um, we had our end of the year meetings, you know, and I expected to go in for my meeting and hear, um, Hey, Amber, great job this spring. Like we've got another group. I came in with 10 girls. They brought in eight girls the next year, like a lot of new girls coming in, like lots of work to do this summer, but look forward to the fall. And what I heard was, how would you feel if you weren't on the team next year? And I, and I sat and looked at him and I was like, everything I've done since I've been in, you know, fifth grade was because I wanted to play division one college soccer. I was like, you tell me how I'm going to feel if you take that away. And he goes, come back in two hours and I'll tell you what I decided. I was like, I'm a freshman about to take finals. And I like, I like start bawling. And I'm like, coach, no, like I, I'm like the hardest worker and thought all this time wasn't the hardest, but I, you know, that was the only, that was one thing I could contribute was my hard work. Right. And, uh, and he goes, come back in two hours. So I, I went next door and I tried to study. Right. But I couldn't, I was devastated. And, um, I opened, I opened my email cause that was literally the only thing I could do. And, and the first email that I read was from FCA. I was getting daily devotionals at the time and I had signed everything. A lat Jeremiah 29, 11, that entire year. Cause 11 was my number in high school. 29 was my number in college. Cause two plus nine equals 11 and Jeremiah 29, 11. I thought, ah, oh, it's a cool verse. If anybody actually ever reads anything we write on these posters and balls and whatnot. So I pull up my email and it starts with, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for your life, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And I just started bawling because I think at that moment I realized like I'm about to get released from the team. And, 
And that was like the only thing I could hold on to. And I couldn't even say the whole verse. I was just saying 2911. And I just bit the inside of my mouth apart. And I'm like, he's not going to see me cry again, you know? And I walk over and all three coaches are sitting there. So I know, and, and they released me and just said like, your knee didn't come back the way we wanted it to. Our roster is huge right now. Um, rehab isn't, isn't what the trainers thought it was going to be. And so we want to wish you the best. And I, and I just stood up and I shook all of their hands and I said, thank you. And I walked out and I just remember standing on the corner of the Jack at Notre Dame, which is the athletic complex. And I like started to walk one way and I stopped and then I, cause that was to study. And then I started to walk the other way and and that was to my dorm. And I was like, why well, I, I, what am I, who am I going to be? If I walk into class tomorrow is I'm not Amber, the soccer player anymore. Like I, I don't even know where to go. And I just stood there for like 15 minutes feeling hollow, you know, like what am I supposed to do now? And I finally just went and locked myself away and, and studied and I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell friends. I just studied and got done what I needed to get done and went to my brother's, he was graduating from college that next weekend. So I went to Boston, went to his graduation. Um, two weeks later, I tell my mom, like, so I retired and she goes from what she hasn't done anything yet. (laughs) I I was like, mom, I was like, from soccer. She goes, Oh good. You didn't need any more concussions anyways. Why? And I was like, mom, I got released. Like then my life is over. And like, you know, and she's just, she's just always so calm, you know, like everybody's safe. You're healthy. This isn't the end of the world. Let's make a plan. And as I was leaving campus, I actually told one person, Harold Swanigan, He's like a huge black guy that played basketball here. Now he's on staff. He's one of my best friends. And, and he was sort of the faculty rep over FCA at the time when I was a freshman. He said, well, Latner, if you decide to, to stay at Notre Dame, cause I was looking at where am I going to transfer to keep playing? He said, um, if you decide to stay at Notre Dame, like, I think you should lead Notre Dame Christian athletes. Um, so if you come back in the fall, like it's yours. And, and so that was in the back of my mind, you know, I was like, well, maybe I could go and just really invest in that. And so, so I decided to stay at Notre Dame. I just really felt like God had called me there and maybe I was just too stubborn to see if it was beyond soccer. So he gave me what I thought was soccer for the time being. Um, and then I, so I led Notre Dame Christian athletes in the, in our athletic department, um, really engaged in our business school, studied abroad in Spain, um, was like the number one business student that got this award in our business school for the number one business student in our business college. And it was ranked the number one business school, undergrad business college in America that year, which was really awesome. Um, I went and worked in corporate in HR for a global manufacturing company, um, where I, I moved around from our corporate office to our manufacturing plant. So I lived in five different cities in two years. When you, sorry, real quick. So yeah, so you're in business, but you also have this connection to Christian athletes. What's the decision to go into HR and not coach or not? Was there any thought of still being in sports or none, none? I mean, I really, I thought that my soccer career was going to end after college anyways. And so I was, I was prepared to go into business afterwards. That was my plan. Um, it wasn't necessarily be in HR. I was going to be in consulting, but none of those opportunities worked out. So again, you know, I was frustrated with that at the time, but looking back, incredibly grateful um, because thought, it led. Any thought to go work for the burger company? Uh, no, no, not my. It wasn't my gig. Appreciated it for what it gave me, um, and and the insight on business it gave me, but not no desire to run the the franchise business at that stage. So the only reason I ask uh, is I know like other people that have McDonald's franchises and like 
they don't give those away. Those aren't, no. you can't get them. They're family, no. they're passed down. And a lot of times they've, they're family businesses and they do a lot of training and just there's yep. Burger U or whatever, Hamburger University. Hamburger U. So I've talked to other people whose families have been in it and they've either gone in it. I can think of two people off the top of my head, one who went into the business and one who just, it wasn't for them. But you, you realize that that wasn't going to uh, fulfill you uh, in the way that you were looking. Yeah. So I just didn't feel like that's what I was called to do. Um, but again, like I went through all the classes I've been certified and all the stuff. So I have, you know, I could have, and, and I know that that's heartbreaking for some people that really want that and want to get into it. But, you know, I'm a pretty purpose driven person in general. And, uh, so, so it was cool though being in HR, um, because, you know, we did leadership development, employee engagement and, and personnel management and all this stuff. And so one of the questions that sort of just kept coming to mind was like, man, like some people do really, really well. And some people don't like, why is that? What is it about humans that like makes them be great? And so, and also I was sitting at my desk, like two months into working there. And I thought that like, I'd really thought about this decision and this is what I was supposed to go do. But as soon as I got there, I was like, Oh my God, people are living for five o'clock right now. Like we cannot wait to get to happy hour. And, and I was like, I can't wake up when I'm 40 at a spreadsheet. Right. And so I call my mom and I'm like, I'm going to kill myself right here at this computer screen. And like, clearly I'm not because like, I love life. And she's like, wow, dramatic today. Are we? So what's wrong? And I was like, I was like, mom, this is, I'm like, I'm literally falling asleep at my desk. This is not good. Like if my manager walks in, I will be asleep. And, and she's like, well, just Google sports psychology. I was like, what? Like for a couple things, my mom and I had talked about every occupation under the sun, right? Like from biology, marine biologist to veterinarian, to surgeon, to lawyer, right? Never sports psychology Two, my mom is like one of the least technical savvy people I know. And she does not know what Google even means at this time. And so she puts two things that I've never heard come out of her mouth before together. And I'm like, okay, mom, thanks. Love you. Bye. Click. Right. But over the course of life, if you learn anything, it's that, well, your mom's usually right. So I get on the internet and I Google sports psychology. And the first program that pops up is the University of Denver. I'm sort of reading around and then I get into their coursework and I'm like, the psychology of excellence, human performance, like theories of theories of performance excellence, positive psychology. And I'm like, oh my God, this is literally what I did in Notre Dame Christian athletes and what I did on my junior high soccer teams and team development and leadership development, all this stuff. So I've been doing this since I've been in fifth grade, but I didn't even know this was a thing. And again, that same sense of peace that I had when I walked on Notre Dame's campus was what I had when I found sports psychology, if you will. Um, but I'd committed to that company for two years. And so I, you know, I just immediately had this plan. Well, this is great. You know, I'm going to stick, stick to my commitment to the company. I'm going to move around for two years. And so in, in those two years, I'm going to network in the athletic space. And then I'm going to study for the GRE, take the GRE, uh, apply to grad school. And then at the end, hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll be able to make a more informed choice. Do I really want to do this grad school thing or, or is this corporate job like really what I'm going to do? And so I executed the plan for two years, um, got accepted to the university of Denver and then, um, got offered a, a next placement with my company. And so I brought this to him and told him that I just felt like this is where I'm called for my next step. And it was cool because when I did, they were all like, this is perfect for you. This is absolutely stunning. We can't wait to see where it leads you. Best of luck. Like I saw great relationships with the company. Um, and that's, so I, I, that's fascinating. A couple of thoughts. One, uh, you've talked about your mom being sort of this even keel person. Uh, you are emotional. Like, and I, I, <laughs> 
I, I don't mean in a bad way, like maybe passionate is a better word, but is dad more like you or is dad also like mom? And dad's more, um, dad's like a grinder. He works really, really hard. And then when like, he's really great at like emergency situations, like when things sort of go off the tracks, like he can keep it really calm and just get down to what needs to get done to solve the problem. Um, so they were both like a really cool dynamic, but I am by far like the most emotive person in my family. And, but my mom is as well. But I think that like when it came to me, she knew that that balance needed to happen. And so it's funny, like in, in high pressure situations, like I'm that way. I'm very calm. I'm very collected. I'm very regimented in how I go about executing, um, in general. That was, that was my next thought because as you explained the decision to go to Notre Dame and the decision to go to sports psychology, you sort of turned down, uh, the thermostat and sort of say, all right, well, actually I have amazing clarity here. And you said both times, like I was very calm. It was very matter of fact. It was like, this is the calling. This is the direction I go in. And it's not this sort of, even your tone and your body language, when you brought it back to those decisions, you even say it with like this clarity and this intention and this calm. So it doesn't surprise me that when you were performing in soccer, that you probably also just were focused on doing your job, being aggressive, playing with an edge, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't necessary. It was probably an intensity to it, but it was also Mm -hmm. probably a a calm or a clarity uh, to it as well. So I just thought that was really interesting. I'll just share my quick sports psychology story. Um, it's interesting because I had the same type of thing. I was working in corporate. It just wasn't really working out there. The company I was working for, it, it was not in a good place. The economy was, you know, this was 2008, mm-hmm. 2009. It just, it wasn't happening. And when I told my boss, like, yeah, I think I'm going to go towards sports psychology, he's like, I think you'll do great. And it was, it was very similar. So maybe there's something to that when you go to a boss with an idea and they're actually supportive and, and you have trust in them and you have a relationship with them. Uh, that's usually a good sign because I think both of us are are doing okay. Um, so, so you graduate from Denver and, and take me to the next step because you took, you took another step in another direction in a sense. Um, but talk, walk me through that, that sort of next, next process and the next decision. Yeah, before I do, I just want to highlight something um, that you you touched on, but just for our listeners in general, um, a, a key takeaway of, of watching your tendencies, right? So your ability to notice in me how it's like emotion and it's a lot and it's ah, da, da, da. and then as soon as I get to a point of clarity, it's when I really lock in. And so just so I think for our listeners in general, for, for us to be reflective on what are our own tendencies and to, to be able to navigate those tendencies well and understand that, hey, if I'm in it, for me, if I'm in this emotional state and it's really up and down, then I'm not to the point of actual execution and clarity of where I need to go and to be okay with that. Right. So, so even like personal story, personal example, right. Is like my fiance and I, like we're dating, we bought this house. I moved to South Bend and this is crazy. And it's like, ah, and I was writing a dissertation and I was like, blah, all over the place. But then like, as soon as we actually got engaged, I like, and I finished my dissertation. So those things kind of happened simultaneously. He's like, you're like way chiller than I thought you were. <laughs> I was like, I know, 
know, because now I actually have clarity, right, in what we're doing. And and he's cool because he like knows me well enough to know that that's that's how I am. But for us in general, like in the in the course of that moment, I didn't freak out thinking like, oh my god, what's wrong with me? Or you know, in all of these phases. And I think a lot of times people tend to we beat ourselves up for for being a certain way. But if we can detach a little bit and not be so emotional about analyzing our own behavior tendencies, and we see the pattern then we can navigate those, I think, a little wisely and with more patience and with more sense of perseverance to get to a place of when we're ready to really show up and be great. So I don't know, just a, just a little tidbit for uh, our listeners. No, let's tug on that because I love it. Uh, so for me, I think about like when I do public speaking, and I know you just came from doing a bunch of presentations. So to me, public speaking these days is my performance. That is mm-hmm. the moment like where I'm being judged, I'm being evaluated, I'm being paid. Um, so it's the closest thing I get to what my athletes go through. So I love doing it, even though it's, you know, Americans fear that more than death, which is one of the most amazing statistics. Crazy. I know. I know. But like, for me, I get hyped. I get excited. I get nervous. I get anxious. Uh, the moment I step on, I'm on. And like, yep. I don't even sometimes remember everything that happened. And I feel the same way when I do these podcasts, like we'll go, we're in it, we're locked in. And I'm just so in the moment. That you know, when it finishes, a I'm I'm exhausted, and b like people will be like, oh, this was cool. I'm like, oh, I don't even really remember everything that happened. I I almost like black out because I'm so in the moment. And I think athletes have that same sort of experience where it's like they're just in it. And when you're in it, um, you bring this energy, but it's also this clarity. And so I think you you hit on something that's really important to know, which is we are not the same way all the time. So mm-hmm. it's okay for you to shift your mindset when you're performing and make it different than what you're like when you're with your mom and dad. Like Richard Sherman Mm -hmm. is a good example. Like everyone freaks out because Richard Sherman has this anger or hostility or aggression when he's playing football. That doesn't mean that that's what he's like when he's hanging out with his family. Like he might Mm -hmm. shift the mindset for performance. And I think it's important to remember that like we are not, thermometers were thermostats and to your point as long as we're conscious about this is what I want to perform this is what I need or this is what helps me perform we can turn the volume up we can turn the volume down you know we can turn the temperature up we can turn the temperature down when we're just a thermometer and it's just rising up and down depending on our our, on our environment on our environment or our situation or what our teammates are doing or what our coaches are saying that's when we run into trouble but the idea that you can turn it up turn it down That's beautiful. And so I find even depending on who I'm working with, like Mm -hmm. sometimes I turn it down. Sometimes I turn it up. You know, if I'm working with a 12 year old kid, like sometimes I know I just got to bring the energy. But if I'm working with a 65 year old golfer who is a surgeon who wants to work with me to work on their golf game, like I probably don't need to energize that person. And that's just a a stereotype. Um, But Like, I think being aware of what do I need in that moment is so crucial Mm -hmm. to athletes. And when they build that self-awareness and that understanding and their ability to say, you know what? Hey, you know, like I have a pro athlete who just had a baby. He's going to be tired the next couple of weeks. Like, all right, (laughs) we're going to need to bring up the energy that when we step on that court, like we are ready to go. And so I think understanding that is so valuable. And and you hit on that. So any other thoughts on what I'm talking about? Because I'm sort of riffing here a little bit. 
No, no, I think it's great. I think that's absolutely it. And that awareness piece of just when are you at your best and how does that process work for you? So this, this sort of parlays well into the next part. So I worked on IMG Academy for two summers on their mental conditioning team. And, you know, they push in Denver getting your PhD. And I'm like, I'm not getting my PhD unless it's a short program. I, it's an applied program and I can do my research on whatever I want. So we're at the New Orleans Sports Psych Conference, you know, and and I, I run into I go to the grad school fair because everybody was going. I was like, I'm doing one lap. And then I'm out because I hate those atmospheres. Well, I run into the University of Missouri table, you know, and I'm talking to these two guys, not really talking to the big group. Um, and I was like, yeah, you know, I told them I wasn't getting my PhD unless it's a relatively short program. It's really applied and I can do my research on whatever I want to. And they go, well, we actually have this program that a lot of people don't know about that. You know, it's only three years. Uh, it's really applied. You get to work in our athletic department and you can you can do your research on whatever you want. And I and I looked at them. I was like man, give me the information. And I like walked out of the grad school fair and I looked up and I'm like, seriously, God, more school. I was not a vet because I didn't want to go to school this long, but apparently we're going to get a PhD. And so like the next day I found Dr. McGuire, you know, who was there. And I told him I, you know, I, I ran into his guys and, and he was like, sounds like a perfect fit. Like, I think you should come. So I went on a visit to Missouri and, and it, it cool story. I mean, they actually didn't have any positions available. And so he found another professor to find a position to get me in because, and it, well, this other, no, this other professor like met me and he's like, I'll give up one of my spots for her to come. And so I, I wound up at Missouri because of Dr. Alex Wygant and, and Dr. Rick McGuire. And, you know, I did, I did my research. Um, I did my PhD work at the university of Missouri in applied sports psychology and, um, did all my research on black masculinity and self-determination theory, um, and transitions into sport. And then, um, build a model of mental toughness, you know, with Dr. McGuire and Dr. Ivy that we've been, you know, applying in different spaces. So I've had the opportunity to present this model at a sports medicine clinic in Chicago a couple weekends ago and the sports med docs loved it just to help them like understand motivation and, and people that they're interacting with on a daily basis in the clinic, uh, from the mental side of it. And then, you know, coaches love it, athletes get it. So it's, it's bad. It's been an awesome experience, but the dissertation process. So we were talking about highs and lows, right? The dissertation process, my dissertations on the transition out of the NFL. And so I did a grounded theory study that just, uh, uh, interviewed former players and then developed a theory and a model, uh, a three model theory around what happens during that transition experience. And so, you know, my, my writing process is similar to my, um, I don't know, my life decision process and that it's like really messy and it's like really up and down and I get really frustrated and I think, and then I don't write forever. And then like, and then I sit down and I wrote my literature review in one day, like Aaron left at eight in the morning and came home at eight at night. And I had been writing the whole day and I wrote the entire literature review. And I literally, like you said, I, I mean, I blacked out. I don't even, I didn't even remember what I wrote. I just kept writing. And it was like 40 pages long. And, and he got, and when he got home, we like ate dinner and I like wasn't speaking. And the next day I read it and I was like, Oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is really good. <laughs> I like impressed myself, you know? But again, it's that if I had been really stressed out all summer, like, Oh my God, like I haven't even started writing yet. Like, what am I going to do? But my process for that is to think is to mull is to struggle with it. And then, you know, when it's ready, like to sit down and just write. And so, you know, giving myself that freedom and that liberty to, to be there. And so, 
you know, I think that in pe- for people in general, we have to understand what is our process like and what are what's our process when we're at our best. You know, and to not use that as an excuse to not write, um, but to also understand how does that work and to not stress throughout the process so that you can really be ready when it's time to when it's go time. You know, mm-hmm. um, so 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 you transition out of that and now you have a private practice where you're working with athletes. You're working with sounds like. I don't know if they were surgeons or medical medical doctors and a little bit in the corporate space. What do you see connects those? What is the bridge? You mentioned bridges earlier. What do you see connects mm-hmm. those different performers? What are the what are the commonalities? The human brain. And and that's what I absolutely love about it is how our brain works. And a lot of people, you know, you can see your bicep getting bigger. You can see your 40 time getting faster. It's hard to see your brain getting more confident, right? Or, or being able to focus better and refocus more efficiently. And so, um, or understand how motivation works in those different spaces. And so, you know, whether they're sports medicine doctors or coaches or athletes or business executives, um, human optimal human performance, right? There's, there's science behind all of that. And when we understand the science and then we apply it to these different spaces, now all of a sudden systems get better, processes get better, people get better. And in the process, they get happier and healthier, you know, and and they're more engaged in their work and their relationships are better at work and at home. And so I think for me, the unifying factor is the brain and not a lot of people know a lot about the brain. And so when I come in and talk to sports med doctors, I mean, that was a little intimidating, right? Like I had fresh PhD and I'm going to go talk to a bunch of MDs, right? And I'm thinking these old dudes are gonna just like, who's and and, and they look at I, I found this in all walks of life. The person that doesn't have a college degree is looked down on by the person that has the college degree. The person that has the college degree, college degree is looked down upon by the person that has the master's. The person that has the master's is looked down upon by the person with the PhD. And the person that has the PhD is looked down upon by the person that has the MD. And we all have this sort of bias. It's like, oh, they didn't do this or they didn't do that. Well, the reality is that good ideas come from all walks of life and all types of education. But I can imagine you walk in that room with your PhD and you feel really proud about it. Good job, Amber. Congrats. And these people are like, we've been in, we were in school for 10 years in grad school. Yeah. Like, like I have friends and we've been, and we've been practicing for 45, you know, and we studied yeah. the brain as well and we know it. So I can imagine why that would be intimidating. I'd be intimidated as all hell, but what was, yeah, what was there? You said that they really liked it. What were the things that really resonated with them? So they never studied the brain. They don't know anything about human performance. And, and here's what I, here's what I get. I mean, we go back to, you know, this growing up with, with brothers or a brother with all of his friends. Right. And, and the rules when you're little, right. Are competence and trust and, and don't be the weak link. And so, you know, if you're good at playing football or building furniture forts, then you can play. Um, if you don't tell mom and dad, what we just did to the dog, you can play. And if you promise to not fall behind and ruin the fort because you're stupid or, you know, when little boy term, then, then you can play. And so the same, the same goes with being a female in athletics or business, like competence, trust, and respect, you know, and be respecting each other. And so the same goes in that space and, and, and competence and, and trust in what I'm saying and, and respect. And so they, they could see that. And I think when we speak authentically and we bring truth and we're, and we really know what we know. And, and that was the thing, right? Like that anxiety pre-performance of how's this going to go? I have no idea. But when you step up, 
Like you gotta be like, if I'm not confident in what I'm saying, there's no reason they should be confident in what I'm saying. And so, you know, I was able to position it in a confident way, but in a relatable way. And, and they loved it. And the model was simplistic, but it made sense and, and they could wrestle with it. And so, you know, they were, they were, they were super engaged and, and the reality of it was they had never learned about that stuff. And so, you know, you know, stuff, Brian, that most people don't know in, in, our, in our world, right. is commonplace. So we talk about it all the time. So we think it's normal, but then we share it with somebody that doesn't have a chance to read about the things that we read about. And they're like, Whoa, that's awesome. Right. That's novel. So I'm smiling. It, I'm smiling because I had the opposite, like not the opposite reaction, but uh, I just spoke to a, a landscaping company. Uh, you know, they have 1200 employees and a lot of these guys are like out working on their hand, you know, working with their hands and working in trees. And, and I'm thinking like, all right, what do I, how do I craft this message? And the CEO said to me, he goes, how are you going to apply sport to a guy who's, you know, working on pruning, uh, and, and doing stuff with trees? I go, they'll figure it out that, you know, it's, I, I'll just talk, they'll figure it out because a lot of the feedback I've gotten from other people that are outside of sport is like, we understand the analogies. We connect the dots for what we do. You're not the expert at what we do, but you're the expert yeah. when it comes to performance and we'll take it and apply it to how we perform. And I could see the heads nodding and you know when you're performing, you know if you've got them and you know if you don't. Because uh, I've had times when I don't and I need to shift gears and try to find another yeah. way to reach them. And so it was just interesting leaving there. I was getting a lot of head nods and really good questions after I finished, which is always a good sign. So yeah. it, it's, it's really interesting. All right. Here's what I want to do. I want to put you on the hot seat and we're going to end with what I call preferences. So uh, the way I look at these are just, what do you prefer? Uh, And you can think about this in as a performer right now. So think about your life. Don't even worry about soccer player, Amber, just think about these for yourself right now. Do you prefer preparation or performance? Performance. I I I prefer performance, but in order to get the performance that I demand of myself, I know what goes into it. So let me just say that. <laughs> Do you prefer working with yes ma'am athletes or why athletes? Both. From now on, you're going to have to pick one. I'm putting you I'm, uh, I'm put in, okay. put in the hand. Why? Why? Why okay. athletes? Uh, a system or autonomy? <laughs> autonomy within a system. Uh, systems. Resume or eulogy? Uh, eulogy. I would call it a legacy plaque, though, but eulogy. Tell me about a legacy plaque. Legacy plaque. <laughs> well, what, what's a legacy plaque? I don't know about that. Tell me about it. Oh, like if you were to put up a plaque of you when you leave the school or graduate or retire, what would you want it to say of you? And so in, a eulogy is like you don't have to die to be awesome. So <laughs> I just a little bit like, you know. A little more present tense. (laughs) Uh, Your generation or your parents' generation? My generation. Evaluations or descriptions? Descriptions. Positive. Ah. Ah, These are great. That's the idea. Um, Wow. Evaluations. Why did you switch? Um, I think because I think how evaluations are presented are important. Um, but I think knowing what's going well and what you need to do better and being specific in those things is good. And sometimes descriptions leave that to interpretation, which doesn't always facilitate progress. 
Do you think winning and losing matters? Do you think an A or a B matters on a test? You know, what my box score said after I finished a game, those evaluations are, are important. Yes, if done well. Positive feedback or negative feedback? Positive feedback. Culture or talent? Culture. Momentum or the moment? The moment. Pumped up or calmed down? Wherever you're your best. That's, that's, that's scientifically grounded, so I will say wherever you're at your best. But for me personally, pumped up. Liked or respected? <laughs> respected. Transformational leadership or transactional leadership? Transformational all day. Love winning or hate losing? Love winning. Risk taker or rule follower? Risk taker. Easy for you, that one? Yeah. Why? Uh, I don't think all rules are great. <laughs> and so I would, and I would consider myself a risk taker. You know, you've, you said something earlier that I wanted to tug on a little bit. So we'll tug on that and then we'll come back to our hot seat. Okay. You mentioned your purpose of like breaking stereotypes. And then I hear a lot of, I am a female in sport or I'm a female in business. And, and you, you almost are taking ownership of that. And I heard a podcast with Sarah Blakely, who is a billionaire who founded Spanx. And mm -hmm. she talked about how she, was, she wasn't driven necessarily to become a billionaire, but she always had this sense to do something special as a woman. And that, that drive to do amazing things as a woman really carried weight for her. So can you talk about being a female and, and trying to jump into this sports space or this business space, which you mentioned earlier is is not necessarily, uh, it's just not driven by females for, for, for a large part of it. Uh, what, talk about the meaning for you about being a female in sports and in business and in those spaces. Yeah, it's funny because I'm not a feminist, I don't think, by any means. I guess maybe it depending on how you define that. Um, I love guys. I love working with guys. I, I've studied guys. I have respect for guys. I feel bad for guys. I think society has created this structure of what it means to be a man that is nearly impossible and keeps them living in boxes and, and totally unable to explore the depth and breadth of their potential as a human being. Um, so I my heart goes out to guys more than it does for women per se. Um, and I don't know why, I mean, how I was raised, the people I've been around, et cetera. And yet it, it is different being a female in those spaces. And so I, I want to, and, and I don't want to be a, a lot of women too, they get in these spaces and they become combative, right? Like I'm a woman and you're a man and you treat me terribly. So I'm going to like, I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, but at the same time there, there's different, um, there's different challenges that you face, like being a female in sport, you know, some of the stereotypes of, oh, you're a Jersey chaser or, you know, you're not ethical and how you may, I mean, and, and silly stuff, right. That exists, but you have to be aware exists so that you can navigate it well. And so, you know, I just think it's important for, for anyone to really understand your identity and different elements of your identity and be able to use that to your advantage versus allowing that to be a speed bump for you or, you know, pretend like it doesn't exist, like pretend like I'm not the only woman at the table, right? Like, no, that's a thing. And, and when I work with young men, 
you know, I think part of my role is to, te to teach them what it looks like for men and women to interact and to work together productively and to have mutual uh, collegial respect for each other. And so my young guys get to see that and watch that happen. And they're learning, right, about how to treat women and how to respect women and, and how to work alongside. And on the flip side of that, like, you know, they try to spit game, you know, and, and I get that. And, and I'm like, hey, that's not what this is about. But you're all right. Let's go. Let's lock in. Be a gentleman. Let's focus here. And so they, you know, I become someone to them that I'm not old enough to be their mom or their grandma, you know, and I'm not really their age. So I, like, they're not really trying to holler. They just want to like, see what they can get away with almost. And, and so I, I get to be in this really cool space in their life where they get to learn like what it means to work with and to respect a woman and, and to have a relationship with somebody that isn't sexual or isn't about, you know, um, them being an athlete, right. And being praised for their athleticism, but more their identity, right. As a human and, and to flesh that out. And so, you know, I don't, I don't really, I, I say that because it matters. Um, when I say a female, because there's different dynamics at play in those space, in those spaces. And yet at the same time, I don't say that combatively or, you know, proudly in, in, in any way, but, uh, but it's important, you know, it's interesting. Cause I just had a conversation this morning with a massage therapist who's a female and she works with pro athletes. And I was asking her sort of, how do you run your business? And she said, well, you know, I worked with this team and then sometimes those guys will get traded, but they'll come into town and I go, oh, so where do you meet them for, like to do the massage, I'm like at the, in their hotel room. And she said, no, she's like, <laughs> she's like, I had one bad experience where a guy, you know, especially for a massage therapist, they're often naked and there's yep. physical contact. And she said a guy like came on to her once and like, she had to really be strong and nip that in the bud. And she said, mm -hmm. you know, since that has happened, she's very conscientious about where she meets people, how she meets them and the boundaries that she sets. And I think as a male, I think about that, like, especially when I work with, you know, uh, under 18 athletes yep. or female athletes, but I also have a way about me that is fun loving. That is, um, I try to bring humor into the conversation. I, I want them to know that I believe in them. Uh, but I think those yep. are challenges that exist. And sometimes males don't think that way. Uh, in a way that I think females might be more conscientious of it because of the way our society is set up. There is sort mm -hmm. of a male being more aggressive when it comes to sexuality toward a female. And we're almost to your point. There's there's issues with, I think, masculinity and that we're supposed to do that. And yep, exactly. I would imagine there's an amazing opportunity for you to not be combative, but to combat that within uh, male athletes. So I, mean, I just think yeah. it's fascinating stuff. And as you think about risk taking, it's like, I'm a risk taker, but I also probably have to set these boundaries and these rules yeah. that like, I'm the expert and I know what I'm talking about. And to give that off while still being open for them to trust you. And mm -hmm. I think, I think male, there's so many male coaches now that coach women athletics. I think that dynamic is really difficult because they have to Cross, they have to work that line between I care about you, I'm here for you, but I'm still going to hold you accountable. I'm still gonna, like Gino Ariema is just a, is an easy example. It's like when you come mm -hmm. here, you're going to follow what I'm doing. I'm going to do it. I know what I'm doing. I know how to. Um, but then there's also an element of working with women that is different than working with men. And I see that in right. my practice all the time. It's like, how do I work with that? And how do I take risks? Like I took a risk once. I did this exercise. I'll give you an example. I, I this exercise where we tape kids, we tape kids up on a wall and I did it with a ton of male athletes 
And it was great. And they tape them to the wall, and then they have to take the tape off, and the kids will, like, they're just, like, a foot off the ground or whatever. And they fall. Right. It always went smoothly, a great exercise. I did it with a female group, <laughs> and I forgot to get their hair tied up, and some of their hair got caught. And, like, you know, for a girl, their hair is, is something that they really care about, and it's really valuable. So it's just interesting as you think about taking risks while yeah. also having to try to follow <laughs> some rules and some boundaries in our world is, is interesting. All right, I'm going to move the ball forward a little bit. Start, okay. Starter on a losing team or towel waiver on a winning team? Towel waiver on a winning team. Balance or specific obsession? Boo. <laughs> seasons of balance that one's really hard for athletes uh because athletes don't they don't live a nine to five like you were saying earlier like five o'clock comes and now it's happy hour or maybe it's time to go home or whatever it might be uh for an athlete they're on the road they might miss christmas they might be on the road for thanksgiving like they might miss it like some of them even might miss a childbirth like it's it's very difficult to have balance in. I think a lot of them think that they have to be obsessed to get to where they want to go. Um, so it's, it's an interesting question. And that's, and that's why I say seasons of balance, because honestly, if you're going to be great at what you do, there's moments where you have to become obsessed. Um, but the problem is when that goes too long. Right. And so, I mean, again, even in our home life, right, like there's seasons where like, the business, Aaron runs a business and they're short staffed and he's working late hours and interviewing and trying to get restaffed. And so, and then that, that phase ended and he kept those work hours. And I'm like, listen, that's not going to work, right? Like this is not happening. And so, you know, and, and so you navigate that of like, okay, there's seasons where my dissertation, right? Like there's seasons where I had to be compulsive to get that done. And I wrote for 16 hours at a time, you know, but like if I did that every day, that's not healthy. And so I think for high performers, if we can see balance, not as within one day, are we balanced, but within seasons and whether that seasons a year or uh, six months or three months, you know, can we, or two weeks, you know, can we, can we understand that there does need to be a balance in, in how we live and how we communicate and how we sleep and how we eat and how we travel and, and all of these things. And then within those seasons, where are there opportunities to do certain things that are meaningful? So like, exactly. Like I know a coach that coached for the San Antonio Spurs and every all-star, sorry, every final four, he would, he would ask Greg Popovich if he could take his son to the final four. And that was his thing. Like, I want to bring my son to the final four. So if they had an off day, he was flying there, flying back and Popovich would support it. So finding those elements that you can do special things, meaningful things, and sort of make the minutes count rather than uh, count the minutes. I think is the way to go. All right, we're going to finish up, but disassociate from pressure or embrace it? Embrace it. And last one is head or gut? Gut. Awesome. So with that, we will conclude our Beyond the Surface podcast. You know, it was fun talking to you, Amber, because there's obviously, obviously a next level of the stuff that I work on every day. So every time I've ever spoken to you, I've always stolen something and applied it to my clients and it makes me better at what I do. So I think I, I think there's an education process that I enjoy as well. Uh, and you know, I think we can wrap about this again some other time, but I want to give you the floor to just talk about where can people find you? Uh, I know you just launched a podcast, which well, as soon as I hang up, I'm not going to 
listen to it right away because I have a client coming in. But, <laughs> but maybe later tonight I will uh, give that a listen. But I know you have a podcast, so tell us about that. I know you're active on Twitter. Tell us about that. And I know you've got a, an awesome website. So just let us know where we can find you, and uh, we'll end with that. Yeah, Brian, I just want to say thanks again. It's been awesome. Been so fun. Um, you know, he and I, Brian, and I have had the chance to to get on some calls over the last couple of years and just talk about sports psych and share ideas. And it's always a mutual learning experience. So thanks again for your wisdom and, and your expertise. You're doing incredible stuff. Um, you can find me. So my website is www.latnerperformancegroup.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at at champ mindsets. That's mindsets with an S. And we did just launch a podcast called building championship mindsets. So you can check us out on iTunes. Um, and the whole point of that podcast is to, so we're in season one and season one is actually my foundational mental performance training program that I take athletes and teams through, uh, sort of the surface level version of it, obviously for every podcast. But so I intro each part talking about a different building block of, of my foundational program and then bring on featured guests. Uh, season one is all former athletes and, and how they had current or former athletes, how they understand and apply the, the building block of the day to their lives as an athlete, to their current roles as professionals and to their family lives. And then we conclude it with some mindset training. So championship mindset training. And so again, the point is mindsets are patterned ways of thinking about different situations. And, and oftentimes the only understanding the only mindset that we know is the one that we have, right? Or the one that we've learned. And so this is an opportunity for listeners to understand, well, how do the best of the best, how do they think about these different elements and what are their, what's their mindsets on performance and on preparation and, and on the different building blocks of the mental game. And so coach Lou Holtz introduces, introduces and endorses the podcast for me. And he's a good friend and, and colleague of mine. Um, and it's just, it's exciting stuff. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you think. If you can give me your feedback when you can, Brian, um, and your listeners, if you could again, check us out on iTunes, Building Championship Mindsets, the podcast. Awesome. So with that, we will conclude this episode of Beyond the Surface. Amber, thanks so much for coming on. And I know we will talk again real soon, okay? All right. Thanks, Brian. Have a great day. All right. Thanks.